Lord Jesus, you did give your life away for us. But in the Gospel of John, you said you could lay it down and you had been given the authority to take it back up. And Lord, we are saved by your death and your resurrection. And we're grateful for that. I pray as we move into the Easter season, Lord, that the resurrection would be big in our thoughts and our minds, that we would meditate on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead often. Such an important apologetic in the book of Acts, um, a way to defend the faith. And we are grateful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that we read in the news this week that the, the tomb of uh, your, your tomb in Jerusalem, where they think you were buried, was uh, in danger of crumbling. And I remember thinking, well, that's okay. Nobody's in there. Um, Lord, uh, we're, we're uh, pleased to be able to announce to the world that that tomb is indeed empty. Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us in our, in our time in your word, that we would learn and grow, that we would hear what you have to say for us. Um, Father, I want to pray for uh, Ron and Piper Muma um, as they're heading back to uh, uh, Arizona soon. Lord, we pray that they would not have suffered too great a loss from the breaking of their car. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, get uh, all the things done that they need to have done. Lord, thank you for Ron's identi identity being stolen previously, so they've already got life lock in place. They're already protected in many ways. But, uh, Lord, I pray that uh, this experience would draw them closer to you, that they would look for your purposes in the break-in. And, uh, Lord, provide for them in miraculous ways. Give them opportunities to brag about what God has done for them, even in a bad situation. Father, we want to pray for CareNet um, as uh, our Congress is wrestling with, uh, with health care and uh, there's talk about defunding Planned Parenthood. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful that there are places like CareNet that can step in and provide for women in need. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless and multiply their, their ministry. Uh, Lord, thank you that they give solid counseling, uh, they share Christ, and they um, also follow up after babies are born to continue to support families. And so we just pray that you'd continue to support their work that they're doing um, and that the churches in the Antelope Valley would be providing and supporting them as well. Lord, um, help us to understand your word now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be opening our minds and hearts. Lord, that my words would um, be what you want communicated and where I'm drifting off topic, Lord, may they fall flat. But would you speak to your people through your word for your glory? And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're going to finish out chapter 17. As I've said before many times, the, the point of the Gospel of Luke is to make us better disciples. He, he is telling Theophilus, I want you to be sure of the things you've learned. Um, disciples are learners. We learn about our master. We follow after our master, and so we need to learn what he's got to say to us. Um, this week, it starts with a question from the Pharisees that really launches us into a topic that kind of almost feels disconnected from what came before, but I, I wonder if the Pharisees are listening to Jesus talk about the coming of sin and uh, the surety that sin will come and, and you have to, you know, whoever brings it's in trouble. And then last week, we saw the danger of turning gratitude into, I'm going to pay God back. Remember last week I said, it could be really bad news to say, Jesus died for you, what have you done for him? Ah, how am I supposed to pay back the son of God who died? Um, and, and that was kind of a warning to us to say, that's, that's not the right attitude, that's not the right approach. So suddenly, out of the blue, the Pharisees asked the question, uh, when the kingdom of God would come? So maybe what they're thinking is, okay, well, this is really nice stuff, but we want to get down to what we want to know. So tell us. Um, if you notice, there's no... There's no description of it. It's not even a quote. He just says, they asked him. 
And there's no sense of antagonism as we've seen with the Pharisees before. It's just like maybe it's an honest question. Maybe the Pharisees are looking at Jesus and going, you know, there's a, there's a prophet in our midst. And he may really have the answer for this. Even though we don't like him, even though he's kind of weird, you know, who, there's no prophet comes from Galilee. But maybe he's got an answer for us. And so they ask the question. So they ask Jesus when the kingdom will come. And Jesus' answer is not what they expect. The kingdom of God is coming in ways that cannot be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. That's probably not the answer they were expecting. You see, Jews at that time expected the kingdom of God to come with such power and such glory and such majesty. It would just be this miraculous thing that would happen. That There would even be signs in the heavens that that would attend the coming of the kingdom of God, that, that David's uh, great son would come into Jerusalem and sit on the throne and throw out the Romans, that another Messiah, another promised one would come and cleanse the temple and, and purify worship there. And this was going to be this great and glorious thing. He would gather the Jews back into Jerusalem. And he would reestablish the kingdom there. It would be better than it was under Solomon. That's kind of what they were expecting. And so they're asking, okay, well, you know, the, the don't sin and the uh, gratitude thing, that's nice, but let's get down to business. When's the kingdom coming? That, that's what they really want to know. So what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to talk quite a bit about the kingdom of God. And if you remember before, I've, I've looked it up. On two other occasions, we talked about what the kingdom of God was. And I cited my favorite New Testament kingdom of God theologian, if I can pare him down that far, George Alden Ladd. Uh, he wrote a book in the 1950s called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And the way Ladd explains what the kingdom of God is, is he says the kingdom of God is his kingship, his rule, his authority. When this is once realized, we can go through the New Testament and find passage after passage where this meaning is evident. Where the kingdom is not a realm or a people, but God's reign. Jesus said that we must receive the kingdom of God as little children, Mark 10, 15. What is received? The church? Heaven? What's received is God's rule. In order to enter the future realm of the kingdom, one must submit himself in perfect trust to God's rule here and now. So what we're going to see is Jesus' answer to them is, you want to know when the kingdom of God's coming? It's standing in your midst because I am standing in your midst. That's the kingdom of God. Do you get a kingdom without a king? The king has come. King Jesus is standing in their midst. He said, you're looking for these signs. You think that the kingdom of God can be observed. That's not, you're looking in the wrong place. The kingdom of God has been standing here talking with you, and you're not getting it. So how on earth is Jesus himself and his coming the kingdom of God if we've established that the kingdom of God is God's rule and authority? Well, one of the things to keep in mind as we begin to look at this, this section, remember he said, uh, Lad said, we could look through the whole New Testament and find uh, scripture after scripture to support this idea. This morning is the perfect set of scriptures. Because Jesus' answer in these first couple of verses is, the kingdom is now. The kingdom is here. And then his answer as he turns to the disciples in the rest of the sermon is, the kingdom is coming. Watch for it. And so the only way to come up with an answer for how the kingdom is now and is yet coming is when we look at who Jesus is and what he's doing. And that'll unlock that for us. It'll begin to unpack it for us. So think about what it means for Jesus to have come. If the king is here, 
If the kingdom has come in the person of Jesus, what does that mean? What does it look like? Because we can't look at it and observe it with our eyes and say it, it looks like uh, this political agenda or this right person in office or the right set of social circumstances where the poor are fed regularly or something like that. He says you can't observe it that way. But look at what Jesus has done just in his coming, just in, in Jesus arriving on the scene. There's a handful of scriptures. I just kind of grabbed a handful of them, a few of them. Um, the first thing is that God's will is done. And, and that's what the kingdom of God is. As Jesus said, I came to do my Father's will. In John 6, beginning in verse, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he's given me, but rise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is the coming of God's will. It is the beginning of the enacting of God's perfect will in the world, where his will is now increasingly less resisted, because Jesus has come to do his will. Jesus is the kingdom. He stands in the midst of him, and he is doing the Father's will. That's why the people don't like him. His death will, in, in Jesus coming and dying, in Colossians 1, it says that he will reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That was at the crucifixion. He reconciled all things to himself. And when we preached through Colossians, I said when he says reconciled to himself, it doesn't mean saved everything in the world, that, that now you don't have to tell anybody about Jesus. He's just saved them. What it means is he has reconciled them. He's put them to right with God. So either they're reconciled in a way that says you're saved or you're reconciled in that you did not follow Christ. The burden of your sins is now on you. His death did that. And, and at the time that the Colossians was written, there were a handful, just a scattering of churches in the world. But that had that kind of impact. That was the, the beginning of the unfolding of the kingdom of God. Later in Colossians, Paul says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, trampling over them. When he's talking about the rulers and authorities, the context there is spiritual rulers and spiritual authorities. Jesus came and in his cross, he broke the power of sin. He broke the, the, the hold the devil had over us by taking death away. And so he defeated his enemies. He defeated the powers and principalities. And it says that he put them to open shame. The terminology there is like a conquering king. When he comes into the town, he has the army he beat in chains behind him. And they're coming in and they're humiliated. They have their beards cut off or their, their clothes torn and dirt on their head and people are throwing things at them. We beat you. That's the picture as Jesus is leading all his spiritual adversaries, all his spiritual enemies in chains behind him and says, I beat them all. That happened at the cross. This is, although we're seeing the reality unfold, this is what Jesus, the coming of the kingdom, has done for us. In Matthew, the end of Matthew, we, we got the verse up on the wall, part of it anyway. Go make disciples. What does he say before that? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. This is what it looks like for the Son of God to come, for the King to come. It doesn't look like what you would think because the rest of what he tells us to do is now go tell everybody. And in the telling, you'll see the power of the kingdom begin to unfold and to roll forward. The most powerful part of that is that Jesus came and he initiated the new covenant in his blood. 
He says that in Matthew 26 when he's doing the Last Supper. He says, this cup is a covenant in my blood. So Jesus has initiated this new covenant that God has made with us. And in this new covenant, there is tremendous promise. We are guaranteed, we are told that we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will inscribe on our hearts the law so that our hearts are no longer inclined towards disobedience, but now they're inclined towards, towards obedience. The law is there. The, the Holy Spirit seals it to us. The promise of the new covenant is that everyone will know him from the least to the greatest. Everybody in the new covenant will know who God is. You won't tell your neighbor, know God. You won't have to turn to somebody in church who's, who's really part of the covenant and say, let me explain to you who God is. They'll know who God is because God dwells within them. This is the promise of that new covenant that, that God has initiated with us, the cancellation of our sins, the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And then according to Ephesians chapter 1, because Jesus has died and risen again, he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, a guarantee of our inheritance. So that's that part of the covenant that is now but not yet. We, we have a guarantee of what's coming. We can see what's coming. We have a flavor of it because we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And God's Holy Spirit seals us as a promise, as a guarantee. It says, I, I'm, I'm guaranteeing it's going to happen. Everything that you've been promised in the new covenant will come to pass. It will be there for you. So this is the kind of thing that Jesus, just in his coming, has done. It wasn't the political upheaval. It wasn't the fireworks in the sky. That's why he said, you can't observe this. You can't look at it and say, well, the, here's the, here are the, the signs of what's going on. The kingdom of God is, is happening in a different way. Now, the last part, he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Uh, the King James translates it as within you. Um, linguistically, within you is possible. It's, it's not a departure from what the Greek words say. It's highly unlikely, though, because who's he addressing? He's talking to the Pharisees. So he wouldn't turn to the Pharisees and say, hey, the kingdom of God's in you. He's already been yelling at them quite a bit, hasn't he? Didn't he tell them early on, like chapter 13, he said, you're going you're gonna to want to come into the kingdom, and you're going to look in, and you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the, the prophets that you've slaughtered sitting at the table in the kingdom of God and you're going to be outside. That's just been a recurring theme. So he's not telling them it's in, within you, as in you have the kingdom of God inside you. What he's saying is it's within you, as in within the number of you standing in your midst, because I'm standing in your midst, because I'm here. That's why the kingdom of God is here. That's why I'm, the kingdom of God has come. So don't be looking for it in the ways you think you should be looking for it. Look for it in a better way. So that's how the kingdom of God is now. What he's going to tell us now is he's going to look to his disciples and he's going to explain to us how the kingdom is not yet. He's going to prepare us for the coming of the fullness of the kingdom. So he looks to his disciples and he says, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Don't go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Um, I had a gentleman show up at my door well, probably about, uh, I think it was, maybe it was uh, about a year ago maybe, and uh, he was proselytizing, and I said, well, you know, I'm not really terribly interested. And then he said something about, well, I want to explain to you how God's your mother. And I went, oh, let's talk. <laughs> let's sit down and talk. And so he was explaining to me how God is my mother. And I said, where do you get that? And he explained where that came from. And um, uh, other people have run into these folks, and they said, did you know as a Christian you can be tremendously blessed if you follow the Passover? 
If you observe Passover, there's a huge blessing for you. And uh, I, my response, I did, they didn't, we didn't get to that, but I wanted to tell them, hey, we do it once a month. <laughs> the Lord's Supper, we do it on a regular basis. We, we celebrate Passover every, t- every Sunday when we remember Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Um, they also claim that Jesus has returned and that it's this, I think she's Korean, some Korean lady, is Jesus returned? Come back. Um, I said, well, how come I didn't know about this? They said, well, great news, I'm here to tell you. I said, well, that's nice, but it says that it'll be like lightning spreading across the sky. Nobody's going to miss this. And they just didn't get that. So uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. Jehovah's Witness will say, uh, one of their prophets early on said that Jesus was going to return, I think, in the 1830s or something. And guess who didn't show up in the 1830s? Jesus did not return then. So what they say is, well, he returned in secret. He appeared within the inner chambers, and he met with us, and so he has returned, uh, but he didn't return to you. Jesus says, look, it doesn't work that way. When I come back, there will be no missing it. It'll be like a flash of lightning from one side of the sky to the other. It will fill the entire sky. People cannot miss Jesus' return. The day of the Son of Man will be like that. So now he's beginning to talk in the future, isn't he? We, we haven't seen this yet. Even 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for it. So now there's this aspect of the kingdom that is yet to come. Um, we're looking forward to Jesus' return. So when somebody tells you Jesus has returned and he's returned in secret, that's where you go, no, I'm not going to say look here or look there. I'm not going to go out and I'm not going to follow you because I know how Jesus is going to return. He told me. When, when he ascended into heaven, the angels came up and smacked the disciples and said, what are you guys looking at the clouds for? And they're like, he just, he's going to return like that. He's going to return in the clouds. There's not going to be a mistake. It's no secret thing. It's going to be worldwide known. So don't follow those people out when they do that. But Jesus says, first, other things have to happen. The the Son of Man must be rejected by this generation and suffer many things. So he says, look, the kingdom of God is not coming the way you think it is. Even you disciples have got it wrong. I have to suffer first. I have to die. And then that begins to initiate the next step of the coming of the kingdom of God. So what he says in the following section is he's given us some clues, some pictures of what this is going to look like. Um, when it comes to interpreting prophecy like this, Jesus is saying in, in the day, it'll be like the days of Noah and that kind of thing. He's, he's prophesying what it'll be like when this day comes. When it comes to interpreting Bible prophecy, there's a couple of different ways to do it. One of, it, one of the schools is called futurist, and that means all this prophecy is yet to come. It's off in the future. It hasn't happened yet. And so they would look at this and say, this is way off in the future. We haven't seen it yet. It'll come someday. There's another view that's called preterist. And the word preterist means historical. And so a preterist would say, a lot of this has already happened. Um, there's, now, I've got to caution you here. There's a, his, uh, a heretical position called full preterist that says all biblical prophecy has happened, including this is the new heavens and the new earth, at which I, time I think, well, then, Put a bullet to my head now, because if this is eternity, I don't want any part of it. <laughs> I'm hoping for something much better. So that's, that's a, a heretical position. But there's a preterist position that says many of these things have already been, fif- uh, or have been fulfilled and have a future fulfillment as well. And so I just want to warn you up front, that's my take on this, is uh, the way biblical prophecy works is it is pronounced to a person at a time with a specific fulfillment. 
But often that's not the fullest, fullness of it. There's more to come. So if I can offer an example, um, Isaiah 17 or Isaiah 7. Uh, King Ahaz is being threatened by Syria and the northern tribes. They're threatening to come and invade. They're going to surround Jerusalem. It's going to be terrible. So King Ahaz is just petrified of this. And so God sends to him Isaiah, the prophet. And he goes to Isaiah and he says, that's not going to happen. Ask for a sign. God will give you a sign to assure you that, that he's going to defeat Syria. And Ahaz says, I would never put my God to the test. That, that's, God doesn't want me to put him to the test. So God through Isaiah says, all right, I'll give you this sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And before, he's old enough, or before he becomes old enough to know the good, difference between good and bad, while he's still eating curds and whey, then these things are going to come to pass. And so that was Isaiah's prophecy to him. We know that to be fully fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ, right? And uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew explains it. He says, all this took place, uh, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a child, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So it did take place in Jesus. That was, that was 400 years later when Jesus was born. But what about Ahaz? That didn't really help Ahaz to know, well, in 400 years that's going to happen. The sign was given to him to assure him, hey, Syria and, and Israel are not going to invade. God is protecting you. Um, I was looking at a bunch of different commentaries. They're not sure who this child was that was promised. There's really no record of a baby being born in Ahaz's house at that time. Um, but we know that it came true because Jerusalem was still standing years later. So God did stop it. So apparently this sign was fulfilled for him. Um, one thing I'd just like to throw in there, it's possible that what happened was when you get to chapter 8 of Isaiah, Isaiah is told, have another baby and name him this. And the context of that is Syria and Israel will fall, is the name, context of the name of the baby. So maybe it's Isaiah's baby that was the fulfillment of that. There's a lot of flap over the word for virgin in that. Um, the Hebrew word could mean virgin. It could also mean young maiden. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean virgin. However, when the New Testament says it means virgin, guess what it means? It means virgin. That's how we interpret the Bible is the New Testament is right. <laughs> so that, there's some possibilities. But this is the way that biblical prophecy works is there's an immediate fulfillment quite often because it's spoken to a person in a context. But many times there's this, this historical echo that rolls forward that we suddenly see the bigger fulfillment of it. So that's how I'm taking this next section is there's an immediate fulfillment and there's a much longer fulfillment. So what's the immediate fulfillment to this? Well, I think what Jesus is talking about here is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, there's, and as we go through this, I'll explain why I think that. I think that was the immediate context, the immediate fulfillment of it. Yet, as we go through it, we'll see that there are echoes that something bigger is coming to. There's a future fulfillment that waits for us. So let's take a look at what he has to say, how he paints the picture of what the coming of the kingdom is going to look like. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given and married, until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day of the Son of Man, when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one on a housetop 
with his goods in the house, come down to take them away. Likewise, let no one who's in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, or whoever loses his life will keep it. So here's what the picture is. The idea here is that the coming of the day of the Son of Man will come swiftly. Um, it, it's so fast that if you're on the t- rooftop, you don't go inside and get your stuff. Um, in, in ancient Israel, they did stuff on the roof. It was a good place to do things. When I was in Korea, I went to a friend's house and we went up on the roof. It was a flat top. He had some lawn chairs up there. There was a big kimchi pot, um, some planted gardens. They were growing some things up there. You do that on the roof because if it's on the ground level, it's easier to steal. But if you got it on the roof, it's harder for people to get up there. So that's what they would do in Israel is they often had flat top roofs and they would have things up there. They could go up and sit or they could um, you know, keep any valuables, something they didn't want general people getting to. So Jesus says, look, if you're up on the roof working and everything you own is in the building and you see the signs coming, leave. Don't go back in and pick anything up. If you're out in the field working and you suddenly hear this, you suddenly see these signs, Take off. Don't worry about what's back behind you. Just get out. It's going to come that fast. That's why I think at the end he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. If you're standing on the roof and you hear the rumble, you see the signs, don't you want to run in and at least grab the photo album? You know, or, or you know, that, that china you bought or something. There's, there, part of your life is tied up in your house. You have things to remember. And so wouldn't you want to run in and grab it? That's the old question is if your house caught on fire, what's the first thing you'd grab? Um, your children, your, your spouse, the china, the picture, whatever it is, something is valuable to you. That's where your life is. Jesus is saying, if that happens, lose your life. Let those things go. Cut them off and take off because you need to be saved. The same thing if you're out in the field, you're pretty far distant from your house. You might be thinking, I could run back and get the the horse and get out of here quicker. And Jesus says, don't even go back. But there's something more to the don't go back because he drops this bomb in the middle of it. He says, remember Lot's wife. You remember when we did Sodom and Gomorrah, I said, Lot's wife looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. It wasn't because she looked at something and that looking at it somehow was a bad thing. It was, there's a sense to her looking back as to looking back with longing. She's remembering the good old days in, in Sodom, how things were back then, and where am I going? And so when she looks back, she, her heart is turning back, and she wants to go back to, to the good old days. And that's why the judgment fell on her too, because God said, I won't spare any of the unrighteous, but all the righteous I'll let go. So righteous Lot is escorted out, and his wife is killed because her heart was there. It's a similar thing here. When Jesus says, whoever would, gain, whoever would lose his life will gain it, but whoever gains his life will lose it, that's the idea of where is your allegiance? Where is your uh, connection? If the kingdom of God is coming, and it's not going to look like what you left behind. It's going to be different, but it's going to be better. So if you're willing to lose that life, I offer you another life. I offer you something even more fuller. And so that's the picture he has for us. So what he's telling them is when the day comes and you see it, you have to go quick. You must leave quickly. And so here's the, here's the part that kind of begins to open this up. See, what happened in 70 AD was 
uh, Titus was a general, Roman general, and he had surrounded the city with a bunch of uh, uh, legions. But in April of, of uh, the year 70, the attack started. And they had the walls compromised, and they were going into the city within four months. Now, for us, that doesn't sound very fast. But we have aircraft, and we can take down walls, and tanks, and all this advanced warfare. In those days, a four-month siege of a city was lightning fast. It would have been considered much more difficult to get in there. So the idea that you see the armies gathering around the city, that's a warning. And suddenly the attack starts, and they've breached the walls that are inside the city. And when the Romans came in to sack the city, nobody survived. They walked along and, sh and hacked anybody they came across. It didn't matter who they were or what they were doing. They killed anybody in the city. And then they went to the, the, uh, the temple. Just like Jesus prophesied, not one stone would be on top of another. They knocked everything down. They pried them apart to get the gold out. They decimated the city lightning fast. That's why Titus eventually rose to be a Caesar, is because his military conquest was so fantastic. He was such a great leader. So that's that picture of the rapidity, how fast this is coming. When Jerusalem is about to be attacked, you just need to get out. Don't even be in around there because it's not going to go well. So that's that immediate fulfillment. Where's the clue that there's more to it? Well, the next thing that he says gives us a hint. This is bigger than just Jerusalem. This is bigger than just 70 AD. He says, I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and one will be left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and one will be left. Here's the hint that we're speaking of something bigger than just Jerusalem. They didn't have a night shift. There was no lights. When the sun went down, you went home and you went to bed because you couldn't see anything. They didn't have street lights. They didn't have advanced lighting like we have. So these two women who were grinding, that's during the day. There's no way they could have done it at night. They wouldn't see what they were doing. And yet, while they're grinding, two other people are in bed, which they did at night. So which is it? Is it during the day or is it during the night? Well, if the lightning flashes from one side of the sky to the other, guess what? It's global. On one side of the world, they might be grinding. On the other side of the world, they might be in bed. So that's the hint. Hey, Jesus is talking about something much bigger than just the destruction of Jerusalem. He's talking about how this is going to come upon people rapidly and, and take them away in judgment, to whisk them away into judgment. So that idea that there's two in bed and one's taken, it means the sword goes through one of them. Two are grinding and one is taken away, that's the sword coming and chopping one of their heads off. It's, it's gruesome. The reason I say that is because in Matthew 13, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The idea is a reaping, a sowing. You cut off and you pull away. So back to the picture of the days of Noah. Noah goes into a boat and sits. He doesn't go anywhere. Then suddenly the waters flood across the earth and who's carried away? people who are judged, they're washed away. Lot and his family are told to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they take off, they start heading away from the city, and suddenly judgment falls. And who's whisked away in this, this fire and brimstone are those who are judged. So when Jesus talks here about one being left and one being taken away, he's, he's getting at the idea that judgment will come swiftly and carry some away. It, it's pretty scary stuff. 
It's also very global. So the immediate fulfillment was, was 70 AD. And as bad as that was, and believe me, it was bad, it's minor compared to the greater fulfillment. Just like I said, Isaiah's wife had a baby. Well, she'd had other kids. That wasn't a big surprise. But the real fulfillment of it was an actual virgin had an actual baby in an actually miraculous way. That fulfillment was so much better, so much bigger than, than the promise, wasn't it? So if we look at this and we think, well, when the kingdom of God comes, it's going to make the sacking of Jerusalem look small. It's going to make it look like it was, it was a minor skirmish. So the destruction that will come upon the world, the destruction that will come upon those who are not part of the kingdom, is going to look pretty dramatic. It's going to be devastating as it comes. I would love to continue on and press into some more eschatology, but I think we need to, we need to stick with what Luke is telling us at this point. Eschatology, eschaton is the Greek word for end, the end times. So eschatology is a studying of the end times. We're just getting a flavor of it here. When we get to chapter 21, we'll get a little bit more. So we'll come back to it, but let's leave it there for right now. So that's, that's the picture is the swiftness of this, the fastness of it. So then the disciples have a question. The disciples look to Jesus and they say to him, where, Lord? Doesn't that strike you as a weird question? I, I, all of us are thinking one thing, when? <laughs> when is this going to happen? But they ask him where. And so I think what they're, th what they're looking at is they're saying, okay, well, your kingdom is going to come and there's going to be this, this destruction. Well, where is the destruction? Where are we talking about? Where will this happen? And Jesus' answer is, again, global. He says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will be. So what he's telling his disciples is, you want to know where the destruction is coming? Look where the vultures are gathered. How do you know when there's a dead body somewhere in the desert? You see the birds circling over top of it. That's a sign that over there, that's what's happening. So what he's telling them is, pay attention to this. Look for where the sign of these, these birds are. That's where the corpse is. That's where the damage, damage is going to come. That's where the judgment will be. He doesn't say, in Jerusalem, in about 35 years. That would have been a nice answer. Instead, he tells them, watch, pay attention, look to the skies, wait for the signs. You'll see it. So as the armies camp around the city, you see the fires, the smoke of the fires going up in places they shouldn't be. He's, he's, he's telling them, watch for these things. I think there's another a subtle play on words here, too. Um, I may be going out on a branch here, a little her heresy, but bear with my foolishness for a moment. The word for vultures is the same word as eagles. The, um, the, the ancient world didn't have this big distinction between different bird types. If it was a bir big bird and it ate meat, it was this. And so a vulture eats meat. It finds stuff dead and it eats it. An eagle goes and kills things. So if he's saying where the corpse is, look for the vulture or the eagle. Do you know what's on the staff of the Roman legions at the very top? The Roman eagle. So think about this picture of Jerusalem being surrounded by these Roman legions, and each one has got this staff with an eagle on top. This is where the eagles are gathered. That's where the corpse is. It's a chilling picture of what's coming for Jerusalem. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to read it. Nobody else brought that up, but I just thought that was such an interesting thing. Did a little reading on, on the Roman standards, and they had this war eagle that they, they carried with them. Um, Actually, it was kind of disgusting because they would offer sacrifices to their standards as they carried them into battle. 
And one of the ways that Titus desecrated the temple was to bring a standard in, set it up in a corner, and offer sacrifices to it. Uh, so the idea that the, the vultures are coming in and devouring, I mean, they get even into the temple, it's pretty tragic. So that's all really interesting stuff. Um, uh, as I like to say, when we get to this point, you've got to ask, so what? Uh, so what do we do with this? How does this make us better disciples? How does this lesson on the coming of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, how does that make us better disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, I think there's a couple of things we need to keep in mind. Is First of all, we have the promise of the kingdom is now. The kingdom has come. The promise of the covenant is here. We have redemption of sins. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have all of these things that the coming of the kingdom, the coming of God's will has given to us now. You have what you need now. It's not perfect. Remember at the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus said, temptation to sin is sure to come. And we dealt with that, that issue of what happens when disciples sin, what happens when they sin against each other. So we have the inclination in our hearts towards the law, towards obedience to God. We know that's better. And yet this stuff that we're walking around in, this flesh, didn't change a lick when we got saved. It still has those same old patterns that your brain likes to think in the same sinful patterns that it always did. Your spirit is saying, no, don't go there. And your body just kind of tends to drift in that direction. So we are part of the now and not yet. We have the promise. We have the down payment of the spirit. We have the law engraved on new hearts, hearts of flesh, that are inclined to follow who God is. And that's, that's where we have this tremendous blessing. And so we can be content to say, I am not what I was. I, I, was, I know what I was like before I became part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus has promised me that he's transferred me from the kingdom of, of darkness to the kingdom of his, uh, his kingdom of light. I know what I was, and I'm not that anymore. So that's the now part of the kingdom. That's the now part of the promise is you have something precious now as a down payment. And yet when we look forward, we say, but it's not yet. So we're warring against this body that's wearing away, this body that is trapped in its old patterns. And, and we're fighting against that and we're warring against that. So we, we can look forward and go, but I'm not done yet. I'm not satisfied with what I am now. I now have a desire to be better than I was. And I can look to the future and I can say, the promise is there. The kingdom is yet to come in its fullness. And when it comes, it will be glorious. So we have this promise that the world right now is broken. It is messed up. There are bad things happening. But the kingdom of God has come into it in ways that you can't observe. So you don't look to the newspaper to say, is the kingdom of God is here yet? It's always going to be bad news. Don't read the newspaper most of the time. It's just bad news. Um, interpret it in light of the coming of Christ. So you look at, at, at kingdoms rising and falling. You say, yep, that's just exactly what Jesus said would happen. And so we can look at this world and say, well, look at the progress that we've made since the coming of Christ. Poverty is much lower than it has ever been in history. People are released from substance living. They, they can now more often have food for the following day ready. Um, there's so many blessings that have happened in the world, largely because of the Christian church. Education has spread. Early missionaries taught people to read because they need to read the scriptures. Education spread throughout the world. We are in much better position than we were back then. But are you happy here? Is this what we want? That's why I was joking around about it. If this is the new heavens and the new earth, put me down. 
It's not where we want it to be yet, is it? But we have the promise that Jesus has given us. My kingdom is here now, and it's coming. And when it comes in its fullness, it will be better than it is now. So when Jesus told his disciples, look, the Son of Man must be rejected by this, this generation and suffer many things, what he's saying is that's the not yet part, is there is still opposition to God's active will in this world. So as you go out and you try to live this kingdom life in this world, expect to have resistance. Expect it to not cotton to what you think it should do. But do it in the hope of saying, but I, I already read the end of the book. I finished the book of Revelation this week, uh, and I got to tell you, spoiler alert, Jesus wins. It's great. It's beautiful. This new heaven and this new earth comes. So as we're wrestling with the world as it is, and be realists, but do it in, in the hope of saying, but I know where this is going. I know which way this is heading. So that's, that's the discipleship principle here, I think, is, is the joy of the now and the hope of the not yet. The, the promise that we have now and the promise that we look to in the future, that's where we're leading to. That's where we're heading with all of the things that Jesus has given us to do. Go. Make disciples, baptize, teach, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And that's where we're heading is the end of the age, the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns, the day of the Son of Man, when he comes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us hope. And we know from Paul's writing that hope is a constant recurring theme of the Christian life. Um, we hope for things that we haven't seen um, because a hope that hopes and things that are seen isn't really hope. And Lord, you told the Pharisees, the coming of the kingdom can't be observed. So Lord, thank you for the hope that you have placed in us, for the promise of the future, for sealing us with a, a guarantee, a stamp that cannot be removed of the Holy Spirit saying, I promise, I guarantee that I'm going to fulfill this, this covenant. It will come. Lord, we, we pray for our little corner of the world, for the Antelope Valley. Uh, Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done in Lancaster, Palmdale, Little Rock, um, as it is in heaven. Uh, Lord, may your kingdom arrive. And I pray, Lord, that when it comes, there would be many with us, not swept away by the judgment, but to stand and to watch the descent of the Son of Man. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus, for your glory, for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the building up of your church. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. As the musicians are coming up here, let me read from Revelation since you just mentioned that. Here's a picture of the kingdom. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped.